Welcome to Sharing About Caring. I'm your host, Carlos Briseño. I created this show as a way to share the creative content of those who are caring for others and those who are the recipients of care. As a storyteller, I understand how writing can act as a therapeutic and cathartic way to deal with the intensity that's involved in caring and being cared for. As a podcaster, I also realize the power of audio to convey the human voice as an instrument of truth. In today's episode, you will hear from poets, singers, a playwright, a blogger, and a book author. I hope you are moved, inspired, and educated by what you are about to hear. Dr. Arthur Kleinman is an eminent Harvard psychiatrist and social anthropologist. He is also the author of a wonderful book called The Soul of Care, The Moral Education of a Husband and a Doctor. In it, he traces the development of his career in academic medicine and his relationship with his beloved wife, Joan. She was the primary carer in his life and in the life of his family. She was the glue in the family, but in her late 50s, she experienced symptoms that were later diagnosed as early-onset Alzheimer's. During Joan's 10-year battle with the disease, she experienced loss of vision, became increasingly agitated, delusional, and paranoid, and displayed hostile and aggressive behaviors toward her husband. I reached out to Dr. Kleiman and asked him to read from part of his book. In the following section, he is reading an excerpt in which he shares something he wrote in his journal. It's a scene that was a moment of positive experience of caregiving for him. Let's go back in time. It's 5 p.m. on a late spring weekday in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2006. Dr. Kleinman has just arrived home after a day at work. He's tired. The home health aide tells him on the way out that the day has been a good one, as Joan hasn't repeatedly asked her where her husband has been. He is happy that his wife seems happy. He lists the many tasks he has to do after he kisses Joan hello. They include making dinner, helping her eat, talking with her about the news on TV, helping her to clean up and use the toilet, getting her into a nightgown, helping her brush her teeth and climbing into bed with her and hugging her as she falls asleep. And then he will leave the bedroom, pay the bills, wash the dishes, check his emails, and prepare for the next day's class he has to teach. I return to the bedroom to look at her in a kind of silent contemplation. We have been married so long, and I have been caring for her now for so many years. Reading her face is like a Lectio Divina, an ancient practice of a slow, contemplative, prayerful reading of scriptures. I slowly pass my eyes over her high cheekbones and arched brow, the sculpted nose and long, elegant neck, as if I am reading Holy Script and recognizing the presence of divinity in her gentle breathing. She is beautiful and radiates a presence, yet with white streaks in her hair and puffy, blotched skin, looks so much older. I am so much older too, I remember. There's something special here that consoles my spirit 
as if I can feel fate working things out for us. But how? It is Joan's deteriorating condition that controls her, and me too. But I don't let myself think too far ahead. I try to stay in the here and now. Many bad days have prepared me to be alert and careful, ready for the next downward spiral to descend. At least by focusing on one act at a time, I can feel as if I am exercising some control over our lives, even though I know this is merely a useful fiction. I run through what I need to do in the next 12 hours or so. When should I wake her up during the night to go to the toilet so that she doesn't soil herself? When do we need to get up in the morning so that she has enough time to participate as fully as she can in a workout and then for me to bathe and dress her? Which of her medications do I need to put out for the morning? Which clothes? Which type of breakfast? And then I look ahead to the new day's challenges. Will she awake agitated or, or paranoid? I am her primary caregiver, but I also need to keep my adult children, grandchildren, 94-year-old mother, and the rest of our family and close friends up to date about her condition, and also my condition as her caregiver. Everyone is worried about us both. I've gotten used to the routines, but periodically things worsen. And I wonder once again if I can do this. I realize that at some point I'm not going to be able to continue. And then what? I quickly change the line of my thought so that I can forget that fear for the moment, forget the losses and hurt too, forget what love and fidelity require. Fortunately, there are many other things to think about. And tired though I am, I can savor the transient calm, the tenderness, even as I steel myself to face yet another day in what has become such a long and troubled journey. So ends just one day, a good day this time, in my life as a caregiver. Dr. Kleinman mentions being tired. It makes sense. Doing, 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 not only for yourself, but for someone else, requires a lot of energy. As we all know, having enough energy for just one person can be overwhelming at times. Being weary is often the default state for many caregivers. Jessica Kantrowitz has written a poem on the topic of being tired in her book called 365 Days of Peace, Benedictions to end your day in gentleness and hope. Peace to your knotted muscles, hunched shoulders, aching back, sore feet. Peace to the place between your eyebrows that cramps from frowning. Peace to the injury that will not heal because you can't afford to rest. Peace to your heart that beats too hard and too sad sometimes. Peace. Jessica Kantrowitz, who wrote that poem, shared with me that her mother is her father's full-time caregiver. 
He has a rare degenerative muscle disease and has been in a wheelchair for a couple of years. She told me that she has immense respect and gratitude for the care her mom shows her dad. Gratitude was also in the mind of visually impaired Irish singer-songwriter Laura Dempsey, who has spina bifida, a birth defect that occurs when the spine and spinal cord don't form properly. She also has hydrocephalus, which is a buildup of fluid in the ventricles deep within the brain. She is full of gratitude for her family and friends, and this comes across really well in her song called Me and My Friends.
Having a creative outlet is important for many people, especially for those who are caregivers and those who are being cared for. Dr. Daniel C. Potts, a neurologist, discovered that his late father, Lester, had a hidden creative talent, which emerged after Lester was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It turns out that his dad was a brilliant watercolor artist, which no one had realized until he started suffering from his disease and started painting. Dr. Potts also has a creative side. He writes poetry and sings. Here is his song called, I Will Love You, which is about the love someone has for someone suffering from dementia. As we share this time together in the dark before the dawn, and I can't but question whether I've got strength to carry on. May I never stop believing I can hold this solemn vow to keep dancing though I'm grieving to be present in the now and so help me I will hear if you don't know what to say as my spirit lingers near you when your mind has walked away I'll be singing to remind you of the promises we've made when you're lost I'll come to find you calm your soul when you're afraid Father God will not forsake me though my heart's about to bleed though deep sorrow overtake me Grace will fly to meet my need. Though dementia storm has shaped me, it can't touch the truth you've heard. So, my darling, if you'll take me, do it only at my word. I will love you in the rising. I will love you in the sleep. I will love you in the shallows. I will love you in the deep. I will love you in the spirit. I will love you in the breath. I will love you in the living. I will love you in the dead. Suffering can take many forms. Amanda Mary has seen many patients suffer in her 40 years of working in the healthcare industry, the majority of the time working for the elderly in county council homes where the residents had a varying degree of physical and mental health abilities. She now works as a health support worker in a National Health Service mental health unit where the majority of the patients are over the age of 65. These people suffer from a wide range of issues, including bipolar depression, severe depression, schizophrenia, and alcohol and drug dependency. 
She wrote the following poem to help listeners understand what it's like to suffer from dementia. As she put it to me, most of us know or care for someone like Sarah at some point in our lives. Here is her poem, I Am Sarah. I see looking over as I sit in such despair, with my sad expression, wrinkles and thinning snow-white hair. Do you know that I am frightened and why I am afraid? I don't know how I got here or how many times I have prayed. What did I have for breakfast and have I had my tea? Where am I? What am I doing here? Is this where I should be? I haven't seen my husband. He'll be worried about me. So many unfamiliar faces. I miss my family. This person here before you feels sad and so alone. Without my childhood sweetheart, I so yearn to be at home. You see, the people that love me could tell you all about my life. They remind me I'm a mother, Nan, and was once a loving wife. Sit me at a piano and I will play so skillfully. And if you play my favourite songs, the words come back to me. I have travelled and seen sights that you never would believe. I could tell you a few stories, but I think it's time to leave. I see you walk towards me, carrying a chair, and place it down in front of me, then gently stroke my hair. Do I know you? Have we met before? You sit down and smile at me. Then say, hi, Grandma, how are you today? It's nearly time for tea. Emotions play a big part in caregiving. One of the reasons why I created this show was to discover a community of creative people like me who were willing to share what they were feeling. My wife and young adult daughter both have Huntington's disease, a terrible illness that is described as the equivalent of having Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, rolled up into one. I wrote a play on Huntington's disease, or HD as it is commonly called, that originally appeared in a column I write for HuntingtonsDiseaseNews.com. The play accurately describes what I think about HD. My thanks go to Elena Monroe and her husband Steve Monroe for acting in it. Why? Why what? Why do you have to be so evil? (laughs) Why do you have to be so nosy? I'm a journalist. And playwright, too? You still haven't answered my question. I'm not evil. I'm a disease. I have no control over my behavior. I just do what I'm programmed to do. You will cause my wife and daughter to suffer a lot. (sighs) I can't help myself. In my book, you're cold. I'm made up of DNA. You're vicious. I'm a functional unit of heredity. You're evil. I'm a gene. You're mean. Sticks and sides. You're cruel. Will not break my nucleotides. And I want you gone. (laughs) Too bad you're mad, but I'm here to stay. I'm on a mission. But why? Why attack and destroy my wife's and daughter's nervous systems and brain cells? Because that's what I do. They will be helpless one day. (laughs) People are born helpless, and they die helpless. It's a fact of life, mister. I hate how helpless you make me feel. I don't feel, so I don't know what you're talking about. I can't wait for a cure. So you can shut me up? No. So everyone with HD will have a chance not to have it. (laughs) Good luck. But since there's no cure, I think I know the best way to shut you up and shut you down. 
we got off on the wrong foot. You think? I was frustrated. You were out of control. I was mad. And mean. I, I apologize. I accept your apology. I'm glad. So if you're not going to yell at me, what do you want? I want to thank you. You're welcome. I can be affirming at times, you know. I'm grateful. I want to thank you for reminding me that you're a disease. Correct. You just do what you do, and you do it well. Thank you. Like a hammer. A hammer? A hammer's made to hit stuff. Exactly. They have their mission, I have mine. I respect that. Thank you. But I'm on a mission, too. What's yours? To share with others that it's okay to be angry about you. You're very good at that. Thank you. I can be affirming, too. And I want to let others know that you have no power. I beg to differ. Anger is just love, misplaced. I'm extremely powerful. And your DNA that's also been misplaced. I am not misplaced. Love is more powerful than anger and more powerful than you. I can wreck generations of families. You can also unite them. I cause psychosis. You can also create clarity by showing family members what's really important in life. I am powerful. You are rare, but that doesn't make you powerful. I am powerful. Love. Love is what's more powerful. No. Love. If you had a soul, you would understand why. Love is the mission that never quits. You're wrong. Love builds up, it endures, it inspires, it restores, it heals, it unites, it dignifies, it magnifies, it clarifies. Be quiet! Love is the mission of anyone and everyone who can't stand you. Love is stronger than you. I said shut up! So, you're wrong. You are not more powerful. Love is... Having hope is often a difficult mindset for family members to have when they are taking care of somebody. The next poet, Sarah Merriman, took care of her nana, who was suffering from vascular dementia for seven years. Her nana lived 30 miles away from her and refused to acknowledge that she had dementia. Sarah's husband worked full-time, and even though she worked four days a week and had two young children to look after at the time, she would go over to help her nana and look after her on her days off and on the weekends. She told me she sacrificed like this because no one else looked after her nana and because her nana had helped raise her when she was a child, acting like a mother to her. Taking care of her nana was overwhelming and exhausting, she said, but there were also moments of joy, laughter, and pure love. At the lowest moments, she held on to those moments and to hope, which is the name of the poem you are about to hear. It's never gone, it's never lost, and though your dreams are blown and tossed, amongst the dark thoughts of your mind, just seek it out and you will find a chink of light, a ray of hope. I know you think you'll never cope. You'll never laugh or smile again. Your life will be so full of pain. But let me tell you, that's not so. Please believe me, that I know. For yes, I once walked in your shoes. I didn't know which path to choose, to lead me out from that dark place, or put a smile upon my face. But don't give up and don't give in, for one day soon you'll surely win the battle that inside you fight. Rage at it with all your might, for you have strength within, my friend, so all my love to you I send, to try and help you soldier on, when you really think all hope is gone. 
Just look deep inside of you. You'll find reserves you never knew to draw upon and make you see that there is hope, there'll always be a new day dawning yet to live with promise and so much to give. Tell me now that you believe that there is much you can achieve. Don't lose heart nor give in now. Please give me your solemn vow that with the ebb and flow of life you know it's not all woe and strife. Tell me you'll hold fast to hope. Then that's enough. You'll surely cope with anything life throws at you. Just know that I am with you too. I've got your back. I'll spur you on. Any time resolve is gone. When you feel it's all too much, just know that I will be your crutch. So lean on me. I'll take the strain. My faith in you will never wane. I know that you'll stand tall once more and pick your dreams up off the floor. Dust them off. Reach for the moon. For hope will take you there and soon. The next audio piece I want to share with you was written by Mike DePorter, the husband of Lori DePorter, who for the past six years has been living with Parkinson's disease, which was diagnosed when she was only 45 years old. He talks about being told the importance of dancing as a form of therapy for Parkinson's. The only thing is, Mike doesn't really know how to dance, but no matter, because what matters is his love for his wife, which he is about to explain. We recite those wedding vows. We believe we mean them, but let's not kid ourselves. We really don't know what for better or worse means when you're 23 years old. The future is bright and it will be perfect. What if I had reliable intel when we got married that my beautiful bride, Lori, would be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease some 20 years later? What would my reaction have been? It's impossible for 50-year-old Mike to counsel 23-year-old Mike, so it's kind of a ridiculous proposition. But 27 years later, the answer is clear. Older Mike would have told younger Mike to jump in with both feet. This sounds like that I'm happy that my wife has Parkinson's disease. Of course not. Believe me, I know the challenges. What I also know is that older Mike loves her even more than younger Mike did, and younger Mike loved her a lot. One of Lori's doctors recommended dancing as therapy for Parkinson's. When she suggested that we take dance lessons, my initial thought was, are you crazy? Although I kept that on the inside. On the outside, my reaction was, great. Of course, my prior dancing experience was the white man's overbite and the pogo and the standing against the wall trying to find a way to look cool. You know, way back in the 80s. Believe it or not, now I dance. Well, kind of. But more importantly, I've learned to move away from the wall and get on the floor. I often tell people that what's important is not how you dance, but that you dance. Would life be better without Parkinson's? Of course. We can't control that now. Life is different. And different has been okay so far. We don't know what the future holds, but we will continue to dance. Parkinson's or not... Find your dance. I wanted to end the show with a declaration. What you are about to hear is a cry of the heart from a caregiver. Here is Dr. Kleiman again, reading from his book, The Soul of Care. 
The great failure of contemporary medicine to promote caregiving as an existential practice and moral vision, one that resists reduction to the market model or the clarion call of efficiency, has diminished professionals, patients, and family caregivers alike. It has enabled a noisy and ubiquitous market to all but silence different motives, ideals, hopes, and behaviors that must be expressed because they are as much who we are as economic rationality. If caregiving is absent from the political and economic discourse on health care, then nothing but institutional and monetary issues seem to matter. Even questions of quality in healthcare become distorted. What counts as evidence, then, is an absence of presence. Caregiving with its central commitments to doing good to others and to oneself becomes invisible and is left out of the debates on policies and programs. And the result is that all of us are demeaned and the profession of medicine and the processes of healthcare are transmuted into something that is hollowed of its humanity and moral value. And yet throughout health organizations, in medical wards, in clinics, in ambulances and emergency facilities, in managers' offices, in endless meetings, clinical conferences, and quality of life care committees, are individuals for whom the calling and the passion for caregiving is alive. They know the power of a touch, true listening, the quiet satisfaction of making a difference. The system is not the people mostly in it. This is a call, therefore, for a serious discussion about caregiving and a reconsideration of its place in medical education, medical practice, and medical research on the one side, and its significance for patients, families, and communities on the other. Nor should this discussion be restricted to healthcare. Once we open the door to the democratic implications of caregiving as moral and political practices, so much of the rest of our lives and world, from leadership to governance and from domestic to foreign affairs, becomes a matter not just of markets, regulations, and security concerns, but of how we can enact care as humankind's shared project. Thank you for listening to the Sharing About Caring podcast show. I'm Carlos Briseño. Know this, whatever you're going through, there's a whole community of caregivers and people who are being cared for who understand what you're going through. Until next time, please take care of yourself.